I came across something, and this may sound a little scientific, but it is just, I share it because it is such a confirmation of everything God has been speaking to us, not only in the past four days, but our entire history as a community and the entire book of the Bible. And that is what it tells us in Romans chapter 12, be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I came across something kind of by accident. As you probably know, we have a, a child who has had special needs, mental development needs. And in the process of working with him over the years, I've been introduced to a lot of things that talk about brain plasticity and the ability to bypass blocks in the brain, where my child couldn't learn to talk, supposedly, but by working and believing day after day, he talks. He communicates perfectly. In the process of that, I came across this book that was written by a neuroscientist who's also a medical doctor. And she has worked with people for decades, adults who have mental problems, whether that is because of a trauma they experienced, they have brain injury, or they went through war and they have post-traumatic stress disorder, or because they are bipolar, supposedly, or schizophrenic, or whatever, whether it be physiological or emotional, she works with people who have mental illnesses, adults. And the reason she chose this group was because everybody said there was no hope for them, especially back in the 80s. They didn't believe that you could change anything that was going on in the brain past about seven years old. And she really believed that couldn't be true because of what she saw on a cellular level. And what she discovered is that if, in her words, as people would, if they would capture their thoughts, they would utterly change their lives. Even down to their physical problems, they would change their lives. So she began to work with these people, believing that because what happens is that thoughts produce a reaction in your entire body. Thoughts are coming to us all the time. We're driving down the road and we see 10,000 things probably in one drive. We see billboards, we see storefronts, and we don't even remember most of that. But then we see something and we look at it and we think on it on a different level. So it's <laughs> maybe everything else is what would be floating around in what the part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. But as soon as you look at a thought and you begin to think about it, it begins to move back into the hippocampus, into the basal ganglia, and it begins a process that is your thought pattern. And when that happens, as soon as you begin to think about a thought, whether it is good or bad or sad or happy, a chemical is released in your brain. And that chemical will hit every cell in your body. And when it hits the cell, there's DNA in there, and that DNA unzips and unfurls and releases a protein. And that is creation. And that protein goes to something in your body, whether it's something good 
or to cancer or to heart disease or to more, thought, more destructive thought patterns. And so she began to teach these people, if nothing else, they must capture their thoughts. They had to de decide what to think about because we can decide what to capture, what to begin to think about, and what to push out. And she began to have incredible success. And she didn't say, you know, just sweep it under the rug. People who'd had horrible traumas where they'd seen someone murdered, she would say, okay, we're going to look right at it. We're going to see what happened, and we're going to say, what if I had a chance to do it again different? What if I could have done something? What kind of person would I be if the best outcome could happen? And they would do that. In order to prove this study that people really are physically impacted and diseases develop because of destructive thought patterns, they took a group of people who had HIV. I'm presuming everyone knows what HIV is. It's not the HIV that you die of, but it, the, it's progression into AIDS. But they took this group, and they took 30 people, and they worked with them, and then they left the rest as they were. And these 30 people, they said, we're going to stop every negative thought pattern. And the process that she would teach people to do, and I believe it was the same application here, but is that every day they had to think thoughts of gratitude, joy, and love. And they not only had to think them, they had to practice them on people. They had to take those thoughts and put them into an action with somebody that they knew. And in the process of that, that they were going to be changed. So they, they revisited these people and they were studying their immune systems. And the people who did this, as opposed to the people who did nothing, at the end of the period of time, they had 300,000 times the immune resistance to virus than everybody else did. And I just, I felt in my heart, God speaking, that the changes that he makes begin in capturing our thoughts, that we will not go certain places and we will take the word of God and think on it and practice righteousness. And I felt such a faith in my heart that God can truly change us down to the cellular level if we will take that action and begin to practice it. And I, I want to give you an example, two examples, or maybe even more, but two of them I've been thinking about. But just actually, this is going to sound silly, but I was in Montana a couple weeks ago, and my baby got really sick. And I am a 45-year-old mother, and I've discovered that I have a lot more worries and fears about this baby than I did with my seven previous ones when I was in my 20s and 30s. And it has been a battle to me. And he got really sick in Montana, and for five nights, I was up with him. And on the fifth night, I was stressing out. The weather was bad, and I was thinking about, what if he needed to go to the hospital, and it's an hour away, and we can't get down the roads, and he's coughing and coughing, and he's running a high fever, and, you know, I, I, these people had this disease, and da-da-da-da. I started feeling ill myself, and... <laughs> And I remembered this, and I said, God, 
help me to practice. And I, I began to pray and I said, well, this baby I had to wean early because I didn't have as much milk because I was old. <laughs> and so I had to give him a bottle and he didn't get up and, and I get held all night every night. <laughs> and I said, thank you, God, that I'm getting to bomb with my baby tonight. And then I said, thank you, God, that you're, you're building Ari's immune system. And I began to feel the Holy Ghost so strong. I started to pray, and I started to pray for other people, and I started to pray for Ari, and I started to feel this power going toward his future. And he fell asleep. I noticed he was sound asleep. And then he laid down in bed, and I kept praying because I felt such a move of the Spirit. And I felt like things were changing on a cellular level, not just a physically cellular level, but in the spiritual realms. And I, I thought about another season in my life. We were talking about love. It was 25 years ago, in a week and a half, this happened. My husband asked me to marry him. And uh, I was very excited about that. But I was a, a very goal-oriented person. And I had a lot of plans for my life. <laughs> And I remember the day he asked me to marry him, I was thrilled. And the next morning, reality came home, and my dad sat me down. And he said, you need to face some things today. You have got to know beyond a shadow of a doubt for the rest of your life that this was the right decision. And then he began to scare me, and he started telling me what it was going to be like. And he said, you know, you've been a very outdoors type of person, and you're most likely going to be a mother. And you're going to be up with babies all the time. And he said, you've had a burden your whole life. You've wanted to be a missionary in Israel. And I tell you, someday you're going to be standing at the airport with a baby in your arms saying goodbye to your husband as he flies away. And that sounded terrible to me. I'm, that sounded like a restriction on everything I thought God made me to be. And I was just like, how can that be? How could that be God? You know, I, I felt these things in my heart. And, and I said, well, I, I need to pray. Thank God my fiancé was out of town on a class that day. So I spent the entire day in our chicken coop praying from the bottom of my guts. And, <laughs> and it was the private place where I could get away from my eight brothers. <laughs> and I was in there, and I just was like, God, help me. I, I want to I I live for you. I want to do something for you. And, and I just, it was like I wasn't hearing. I, all I could see was what I had pictured God wanting me to be, and that not happening, and, I, and that's all I could see, and suddenly I felt God speak to me and say, if I've called you to raise up a John the Baptist or a Phineas for me, is that a small thing to you? And it was like my whole perspective was reoriented, and I felt like you know, this isn't about me and what I'm going to be. 
This is about the kingdom of God. And I got the privilege to be a part. Even if I just was a doorkeeper, that would be wonderful. But God might even give me someone who could mean something to him. He might be giving me a husband that could be do something great for him. Brother Dan wasn't a minister. He wasn't even leading music in the meetings. And yet I felt like, oh, God, I've got to handle this with care. You gave me these people. Help me to look at it like that and say I'm going to support everything God might want to do in this circumstance. I stand behind God to support the kingdom of God. And I never wavered for one second of my life since then about whether I married the right man or whether I should have got married. I felt like in the little things and in the big things, I'm doing a great work for God and how dare I demean it. I'm so thankful to be a mother in the kingdom of God. And I just feel such a gratitude for God to make us into those mothers and into those children and into those brothers and sisters. We have such a great opportunity. I'm reminded of something I shared in our spring conference last year about two mothers. And it hit me, my dad had written about the education of Abraham and Sarah and of Hagar, her, her place in it. And how God, he made his entire people out of that family. And Brother Ossie has shared with us so many times how if God purposed to bless all the families of the earth through the family and its orchestration together, then Satan purposes to curse all the families of the earth through our lack of unity and support of one another. But the thing that got to me about that is I went back and I read that story. And you know... Sarah was from Ur, and she is referred to throughout the Bible as the mother of the faithful, as the wife of Abraham, of the Hebrew, the mother of the Hebrew women. Um, she's all these things, the, the mother of the promise. She's all these things, but she's never talked about as an Urite, if that's even what you would say, but that's where she was from. And yet, Hagar was also in Abraham's household, and she is always referred to as the Egyptian woman. And so there's something in her that remained an Egyptian. She never lost her identity into what God was doing. And that's why she couldn't bring forth the promise. She was just a slave who came from Egypt. Her whole identity was in Egypt. The way she related was from Egypt. The way she raised her son was from Egypt. And she couldn't be the mother of any promise. She could only bring forth the children of the flesh. And yet, Sarah, she didn't know what she was doing. She was confused about whether she's the sister or the mother. But she didn't have that Egyptian identity anymore. She said, I'm not looking to succeed as Sarah, as an Urite. I'm looking to be a part of the families that God's going to bless. And God blessed her. 
and he turned her mistakes around and he made her that mother. And may God bless every one of us in that way as we lose every Egyptian identity and we transform our minds by taking captive every thought about the negativity of our place. It's all negative for our flesh, but it's all positive in God. I didn't know what Sister Amanda was going to share with you today. She didn't share it with me, and I didn't share with her anything that I was planning to share with you tonight, but you feel deep calling unto deep tonight, don't you? That the love of God is moving in a way that melts mountains. In the presence of the Lord, the mountains melt like wax. Sometimes we think that we need dynamite, and maybe sometimes we do. (laughs) But there are also times when the love of God starts to invade. It's almost like he comes in the back door. When we've got the front door barred, the Lord comes around the back door and starts melting us down and helping us to rearrange what it is that we even really want in our own lives. Because we get confused about that, don't we? I'll read you a passage that I had marked here. Thank you, Jesus. Sometimes that mountain is just the way we're thinking. It's our plans. It's our goals. It's our understanding of the way things are going to happen. And that becomes the big mountain. But tonight we're hearing that it can be plastic enough that it can change. Amen. But the passage that the Lord gave me earlier was this one from Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. I guess when I was younger... I read this passage on maybe a shallow level. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Kind of like if you just praise the Lord and think about God, then he'll let you do what you want. Then he'll make you into what you want to be. Do you think that that is the primary intent of this passage? Is the Lord just wanting us to... Do a little something for him so that he will bless us in the course that we have set for ourselves? Or could he be saying something else? And I looked up these words one time and I went back and looked again before the meeting to make sure I was right in what I was remembering. And this word, delight yourself in the Lord, do you know what this word delight translates as? It means to become soft or pliable. Maybe we could say plastic to have plasticity, to be moldable in the hands of the Lord. And the thing I noticed before the meeting that I had never seen before, and I was looking in this lexicon thing, and it said, it's the kind of feeling that someone has when they're in love. It's the kind of softness that comes to somebody's heart when their attention is pulled towards something else where all of their delight All of their longings, all of their feelings are invested. And so it's saying become pliable. 
in the hands of the Lord. And he will give to you the desires of your heart. And, and the word give there means to appoint. It means to ordain. It means to designate or assign. In other words, give yourself to the Lord out of your love for him. And he's going to tell you what you want. Now to the flesh, that's a scary thing. I don't want anybody telling me what I want. I already know what I want. I want what I want. I'll tell you something. Speaking of lessons that we learned in our early years, Blair is already smiling because I've told this story before. My son Blair was um, an opinionated baby. <laughs> Praise God, his character has developed a little bit since then. But he knew what he wanted, he thought. And, you know, uh, Helen was such an angel, and then Blair came along. We thought we were perfect parents until Blair came along, and then we realized it didn't have much to do with the parenting. We had a lot to learn. Fortunately, we were surrounded by incredible examples that helped us to grow in, in the grace of God in that capacity. But anyway, I remember one time, you see Amanda knew a little bit more about babies than I did because, because of those eight brothers and one sister. And I was raised with two brothers and, you know, uh, we, I wasn't, hadn't been around babies because they were, I was too little to know when my younger brother was born. And so I hadn't been around babies very much. And, and when he was, Blair was a few months old, at one point, he was fussing and fussing and fussing and fussing. And is he changed? Yes, he's changed. Is he hungry? No, we already fed him. Is he hurting? No, we can't find anything wrong with him. Is he hot? No. Is he cold? No. What is wrong with this kid? He says, <laughs> And Amanda said some profound words to me that I have always remembered. I said, what does he want? And she said, he doesn't know what he wants. It was true. He doesn't know what he wants. Now we're doing this all over again with Ari. And I'm remembering. He doesn't know what he wants. And think about it for a minute. Does he know what he really wants? Even when he's sure that what he wants is a bottle and when he's sure what he wants is to be rocked and whatever. Is that going to fulfill him in his life? He's so short-sighted. He does not know what he really wants. We know much better than him what he really is going to want. The Father knows what we want when we ourselves do not know what we want. Fortunately, God gives those babies parents. And if that baby may not know what he himself really wants, he at least knows that this is mommy and that this is daddy and that there is a relationship here of love and trust that even when I don't see it, I can feel that life is deriving from this connection. In the same way that as we spoke about last night, Brother Ossie talked about Peter. When Jesus was speaking hard words in John 6 about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they said, this is a hard saying and who can understand it? And so everybody left, thousands of people who came for the loaves and the fishes, left him because I don't know where he's going with this. I don't understand what he means. What is he wanting us to do? 
The whole thing sounds a little strange and scary. And so Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to leave too? Are you just going to give up because you can't quite see where this is going? Has this gotten beyond what your plans were and what you thought that you wanted? I don't know. This is getting a little, I don't know. It's a little too much, too intense, too radical, whatever. Are you going to leave too? And that's when Peter has that response. And he says, Lord, where else would we go? He doesn't say, no, no, I got it. He doesn't say, we understand when everybody else doesn't understand. But Peter did, in fact, understand something. He understood the relationship and who had been sent to him by God. So he says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God, that God himself has sent his anointing on human flesh and that his word is flowing through you. And his word is not just something that, is, that we're tweaking and messing with in our brains as we stand over it, but it's something that we must stand underneath as we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. Thank you, Jesus. And I, I, you just feel in these days, don't you, that God has been building line upon line, precept upon precept, working in our hearts. There's maybe a few new faces tonight. You haven't been here with us the past three days, but there's good news. The same wages come to those who come at the 11th hour. So the Lord is going to be with us all. Amen. But you feel like it's something is growing. And part of what's growing is not just that we've been developing a structured teaching, you know, about how to be the body, but God has been working on our hearts. He's been adjusting our posture. We heard that word again last night. You know, when Brother Danny Seifu shared with us a couple of nights ago, it, I really felt the Lord in what he, he shared there. And really, he was talking about his first love, wasn't he? How did you say it, Brother Danny, that, that, that recently you had the same feeling that you had when you first came to the Lord? And that when you first came to the Lord, you just had, Brother Zach described the same thing last night. When you first come to the Lord, you have this feeling like, I do not know where we are going. I'm, I'm an Abraham right now. I'm stepping out, not having any idea where I'm going. But I know who I just met. I know who I'm in love with. I'm feeling something that is entirely new to me, and it means everything to me. It has become the defining characteristic of my life, is that this relationship is my everything. And so I think he said it like something like this, that whatever pleases you, speak it to my heart. Wherever you want me to go, I'm going to go. I don't have to see the next three steps. I just trust you for the one that's right in front of me. And it's this complete trust that comes from a completely surrendered love. Surrender to God is not so much like surrendering to a more powerful army because you kind of, you kind of figured it out that he's bigger than I am, he's smarter than I am, you know, resistance is futile. God doesn't want us to surrender like that. Is that the bride that he wants? Does he want a bride that's like, oh, well, here we go. He's bigger and stronger than me, so I guess I'm going to have to do what he wants. We'll call that submission. Is that what he wants? 
His heart is going to be broken if he feels like that after all he's given for us, the best we're going to give is some kind of obligatory compliance to his will. Doesn't he instead want a ready bride, an eager bride, a willing bride who says, because I love you and because I feel your love for me, it is my heart's desire. I surrender all to you from the heart. The problem is, it's not always our desire because we don't know what we want. And yet the Lord knows that there is not a more incredible life. There is not a more fulfilled life than living in that kind of desire. And so he keeps speaking to us and wooing us, even through the hard things that we go through. He's trying to get our attention to help us to finally realize that we could choose to lay down our lives. Sister Amanda didn't tell you, she didn't finish the story and tell you that she did end up standing in the jetway and waving to me while I went to Israel and she stayed home with the babies. And you know what? It wasn't a trial, was it? She was glad to get away from me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it wasn't a trial because we both were learning what it meant to be in the purpose of God. And see, the thing that she didn't know before we got married, at least not in an experiential way, and I didn't either, was that when you get married, you become so one with each other that where one goes, the other goes. Amen? It's like your, your heart goes wherever your spouse is going, you're going there too. Because you're so united in purpose that you're not going to feel that kind of division. I know we can lose it, but that's God's pattern for us, isn't it? That's his heart for us is that we feel that way. And so you just don't know what you're going to feel about those babies. You just don't know what you're going to feel about that spouse. You just don't know what you're going to feel about the body of Christ and about doing the will of God until you get into it. I was thinking earlier about a phenomenon that the, that the world, pop psychology would call, the midlife crisis, and it's, it's this thing where, you know, you get, you get partway through your life and you spend the first part of your life aiming towards the goals and the plans that you are gonna, you're going to accomplish or you're going to be or you're going to have or you're going to do. You spend the first part of your life working on that and you're, you feel a sense of direction and purpose perhaps, even though you may not be accomplishing any of that yet, you're going to get there. Then you get partway in and you start getting older. And you come to a point where you, you, you start taking an assessment of what you've done or who you are. And you may not be happy with what you see. And you have a sense of your limitations, your growing limitations. But you know you're not at the end of your life yet. You know there's, you're still here. And I think two things happen that bring people to this crisis where they sometimes do strange things, actually. You know, people will all of a sudden get divorced and say, this isn't working out. i got to do something else. It's not living up to my expectations. Or they will change their hairstyle and buy that red convertible that they always wanted. And, you know, they're 50 years old, and, but they're ah, we're going to become a, the kid that they always somehow thought they were going to be, but they got distracted with life, and now it's getting away from me or whatever dye your hair purple, whatever. And 
it's like two things, I think, happen that sometimes bring people to that place. And one would be that you're, you're looking at, at all these plans and goals and dreams, expectations that you had for your life, and you realize we're just never going to get there. Whether it was wealth or it was success in, or popularity or status or, or whatever. And you realize we're not getting there. You know, you measure your life, the success of your life, if you measure it in the, the, the things that the world holds up to us, then it's going to exalt youth and beauty and strength and mental acuity. And you come to a position where you start to realize all those things are diminishing in my life. And it isn't going to turn around, not going to get better. And so if that's where your value lies, then it's all downhill from here. It's kind of depressing. You never got to your goals, maybe, and that's one way that it happens. The other way that it happens, which is a little worse, is that you examine all of your goals and you realize that you did get them. You got the money. You got the looks. You got the charming family and, and the perfect American 1.2 children or whatever. You, you got it made. And it's empty. You thought that that was going to be, when you got there, that was going to be it. And when you got there, it was nowhere. It didn't satisfy your soul. So those are maybe the two ways that people come to that place. But does this happen to us in the kingdom of God? That's maybe a little bit of a trick question because I tend to think that if we're truly in the will of God, immersed in it, we're going to have a testimony like Brother Thompson's, and we're going to say, I got love letters every day. And, and may, we might add to that, you got to write love letters every day, not just get them. And you've walked in relationship with God. I know scores, if not hundreds of people that I could, I know right now they would testify, oh yeah, there were trials, but God, it's been, it's been uphill towards the top of the mountain the whole way. Amen. So in a sense, No. It doesn't happen in the kingdom of God. But can we be prone to it? I think we can. I think we're human. I think we face the reductions of life just like anybody else. The Lord doesn't tell us that, well, you believe in me. You're not going to have to go through any of this stuff. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to get old. You're not going to encounter tragedy or trial. or You're never going to get bored. It's never going to seem hard. He doesn't promise us any of that. What he promises us is that we can have victory in the midst of every one of those things so that our testimony to the world and to our own children and to, to any of those that would come unto him is not one of that we've been the privileged kid, you know, that was spared all of that hard stuff, but that we can identify, we can relate, and yet there can be joy in the trials. But we can come to those times, can't we? where we're in the process and the plan just didn't go exactly how we thought that it was going to go. Maybe we even had good ideas in the Lord. We planned to be this for the Lord. We thought that we were going to have this kind of ministry. or We thought we were going to be the missionary to Israel, whatever. But are we plastic enough in our minds, in our hearts? Are we moldable, pliable enough in the Lord's hands that we can continue to say every day, God, I don't know what I want. You know what I want. I think sometimes 
we make the mistake of telling ourselves that our reward is going to come to us in the same form as the sacrifice that we pay. So we feel like I'm going to crucify the flesh, and if I do that for long enough and hard enough, the Lord is going gonna, is gonna to finally let up on my flesh and give my flesh a break, maybe even give it some treats. I sometimes think about the diet example. You know, you, you can get on these diets where you're, you're going to lose weight and, and, you know, there's a new revelation that comes out. You know, they, they put a bunch of federal funding into it or something and they, they discover that proper diet and exercise is the key to good health. That gets discovered every year or so. And so that's really the only thing that's going to do it in a, in a sustainable way, right? And so that takes hard work, and it doesn't happen overnight. That's a sacrifice that doesn't get over with in one church meeting. I repent of my bad habits and go out for a cheeseburger, right? I mean, you, you've got to walk in that. And so sometimes they set up these diets, and I'm not here to condemn anybody about their diet, okay? That, that's not my point. But they set up these systems, and I'm not saying this is a terrible thing. Just follow with me for a second. They set up these systems where you deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself. And if you've been really good for a week, then you get some bonus points. You can have dessert. But I would like to propose to you that nobody really diets just to get to have that dessert. Do you? If you're dieting in order to have dessert... Forget the diet and eat dessert every day. That's not why you're dieting. You're dieting because there's something far more valuable than eating that cookie on Saturday. And it's, maybe it's your good health. Maybe it's your good testimony that your life speaks of something, of the self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit, whatever. And I, I know there's, again, I, I'm not here to talk about that. But do you follow my point? If we're living for the Lord, and we think that the living for the Lord means I'm going to I'm going to crucify the flesh, crucify the flesh, crucify the flesh, so that I can reward the flesh. You know, God is going to bless me. I'm going to delight myself in Him, even though I don't really want to. And then He's going to let me do what I really wanted to do all along. And I'm proposing to you that that's not where the reward comes. That the reward comes to us in something completely different and so much more fulfilling and so much more satisfying than more treats for the flesh. The reward comes in knowing in your integrity before God that you're actually becoming the person that he made you to be. That you feel his love flowing not just to you but through you to those kids to your husband or wife, to your brother or sister, that this, this love becomes your life. There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. I think some versions say a dream deferred makes the heart sick. Is it wrong to dream? Is it wrong to have dreams? Shouldn't we say, well, it depends? <laughs> we kind of have to say it depends, doesn't it? Because we've probably all had dreams that came to nothing. 
And if that dream was your life, your dream home, your dream car, your dream job, your dream spouse, your dream vacation, whatever, the American dream, if that dream is your life, you're going to hit that midlife crisis sooner or later. You may hit it at 20. You may hit it at 80, but you're going to hit it. So it matters, where does this dream come from? Is this my dream? Is this what I want? Or is the Holy Spirit somehow dreaming through me? Is he somehow giving me the desires of my heart? I was remembering earlier, and mom could tell this better than I could, but I've heard, I've heard her and Brother Blair talk about this for years, about being back around the same time Brother Thompson was filled with the Holy Ghost up in New York. They were in that slum chapel, just a very few people, worst part of New York City at the time. No money. Nobody was noticing except the Lord. Nobody was noticing. There's this little handful of people come off the streets sitting in that little chapel and they said sometimes the Lord would be so present and so thick in the room that nobody would even say anything. Silence would be in the room. And just the, the thick presence of God, and they said it, it felt like they were just some tiny corpuscle, some little capillary in the body of Christ, and the heartbeat of God was throbbing through them. They're, they were like this little infant sleeping in the crib of purpose that God had plans for, and it was like the father was looking down at that baby with his hopes and his dreams for the future. Maybe this is the John the Baptist. Maybe this one is the Moses who would deliver his people. And that God himself was looking over that little newborn body and that his dreams were washing over them and, and, and through their, their hearts and through their minds. And even way back then, nothing was visible. Nothing was, you know, all the exterior things that people have come to know Homestead for, you know, the farm and the crafts and the music and the whatever, whatever it is. People see the fruits that hang over the wall. But there were seeds. There were dreams. There were visions in the heart of God of what could be. And they themselves would begin to feel the vibrations of what God was going to do. It was beyond imagination what God was going to do. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Delight yourself in the Lord. Just enter into this presentational reality of the movement of the Holy Spirit and then, and then stay there long enough for God to mold what you want to shape your heart and your dreams and your desires. Thank you, Jesus. Commit your way to the Lord, this says. Trust in him, and he's going to bring it to pass. The flesh is not going to reach for God's dreams. The flesh is, is, is not going to be saying, oh, I long to be a servant. Okay? If you're waiting for your flesh to get excited about that, it's not going to. 
Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He said, this is my food to do the will of God. This is my desire. This is what keeps me going. This is what keeps me alive. This is what satisfies my soul, is doing the will of my Father. Whether I completely see it, whether I completely understand it, it does something to my soul when I can feel the smile of God on me. Jesus tells us something interesting in John 7. We want to think, I just need God to tell me what He wants me to do. And once He tells me, I'll be able to kind of get my mind around it, get my heart around it, and try to pull myself into submission because I'm sure I'm not going to like it. That's the flesh speaking when you think that way. But I'm sure it's going to be hard, and I'm sure I'm not going to like it and everything, but I just don't even know what to do. I mean, what is God? What are we talking about? Everybody keeps talking about steps that we're going to take, and what are we even talking about? I'm afraid what they're meaning, what they're implying, is that we're going to have to do that. I hope that's not what we're talking about. You don't think God is telling me to do such and such, do you? You don't think that when brother so-and-so is preaching that he's meaning what he's saying, do you? I'm, is God, God's not expecting us to do that, is he? Isn't that what we talked about in the last couple of meetings? That the word of God requires some obedience from us. Brother Zafir would tell you that in Hebrew, the word for obey and the word for hear are the same word. If you don't obey, you didn't hear. You can't say you heard the word of God if you didn't do it because you didn't hear the way you're supposed to. You just didn't hear it if you didn't do it. And so what is the prerequisite for knowing what that word even is? But Jesus tells us in John 7, he says, He who wills to do my will, he will know if the teaching I'm bringing is from God or if I'm speaking on my own authority. He said in the next chapter, you don't hear. You don't hear the words that I'm saying. Why is it that you don't hear? You don't hear because you don't belong to God. He who belongs to God hears what God is saying. And that's why the Lord keeps speaking to us about surrender. There is a will that has to break before you even hear, before you can even start to feel what that dream is from God. Certainly before you can truly take steps to obey it, you got to hear it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, and, but God sends it and some hear and some don't. Some obey and some don't. What's the difference? What is the posture of our hearts? Is the willingness already there? Where there is a willingness, the gift is accepted. It's not according to what we don't have, but according to what we have. You may only have the two coins, but where there is a willingness to give everything and say, God, I'm not measuring this. I'm not contemplating it. I'm, I'm not going to assess it and say, well, let's try this much and see what happens. That posture We don't even get it. 
We'll walk out not even knowing what it was we were talking about. But the heart that says, God, whatever it is, just speak it to me. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm listening in the kind of way that says, it doesn't matter what you tell me. When Naaman came to get healed, he knows what he wants. But he's got expectations about how he's going to get what he wants. And really, he doesn't even know what he wants. Because what he gets is a lot more than, than freedom from his leprosy. He encounters the God of Israel. He realizes that he wants to start worshiping this God. He comes to something far greater. But, but he comes with those expectations that always get us in trouble. So he leaves this miracle there in the Jordan and goes walking off saying, I thought that the prophet was going to come and do this. It was going to happen like that. Those first two words are always the problem. I thought, I thought it was going to be this. I thought it wasn't going to be that. Oh, brother, not that. Like Ananias to Paul or like Peter to Cornelius. Here comes another human vessel that finds the humility to say, if God had asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? Well, of course. I'm here to do something great for God. And God says, why don't you become a mom? Why don't you learn to serve? Why don't you let go of that addiction? Why don't you let go of that petty obsession? Why don't you let go of that free time for yourself? Whatever it is that you're so scared you're going to lose, why don't you just give it up? How much more when he tells you to wash? Why don't you just do it? And, and, and fortunately, there was enough humility in this, this stranger, this foreigner, that he could at least hear the sense in that and say, what if that's my miracle? What if this change of posture of getting rid of what I thought is the starting place for the miracle that God wants to do for me? I thought before the meeting of, of a song that I heard years ago, it says, you know, I've looked into my future to what I cannot say. I've spent my whole life to get where I am today. I'm too old to start all over, and I'm too young to call it quits. This time, I need a miracle. It says, they say that money's the answer, and you know I've made a lot, but it didn't buy me peace of mind. It just paid for what I got, and all I got was trouble and things that pass away. This time, I need a miracle. And I just feel tonight the miracle, it's that close. You're walking down saying, I don't know about that. That just doesn't, is that really? And the Lord is saying, would you just adjust your posture and just turn back around and say, what if that's it? Isn't this, well, well, I'm not going to walk away from this. I'm just going to turn around. I'm going to believe the word. If something is stirring in my heart tonight and it reminds me of that first love, it reminds me of something I felt way back when and I kind of lost it somewhere. But I'm reminded of that and something is stirring. I just want to feel that again. I'm just going to decide to adjust my posture. And that will be the miracle. You're going to start living the string of miracles. And if you once lived it, you're going to get back in the flow. You're going to find it again. You're going to remember and say, this is it. This is my first love. I just feel like it's so close. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I feel the love of God washing over us tonight, just pleading with us and telling us 
those who cling to worthless idols, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's that close. God, adjust our posture. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for your grace upon us tonight, God. Lord, I choose to surrender. Amen. I choose to give you the desires of my heart. Breathe through us, Lord. Dream through us, God. Put your vision into our hearts as we just love you, as we just remember the things we did at first. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. While Brother Dan was speaking, he said something along the lines of that the mountain we need to move is our ideas of how our life should be. And that stuck out to me because that's exactly what I was sitting there thinking when we were worshiping before. I was thinking about the widow of Zarephath and how Elijah is going through a tough time in his own life. He had a midlife crisis in a cave, if you remember. And he found himself sitting in a cave feeling hopeless, feeling like everything he'd given his life to was in vain. And the Lord came and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? He told the Lord all the impossible scenario. And the Lord began to tell him a different vantage point, a vantage point of faith. But the widow of Zarephath coincides with one of these, these tough seasons in his life. He's fleeing from people who want to kill him. And it says that he came... And she was part of a famine, a season of famine. And it says that when he met her, he asked her what she was doing. And she said, I, I am gathering twigs to bake the last cake so that my son and I may eat it and die. And... That's a midlife crisis, if ever I heard one, you know. That's someone who has no future, who has no sense of purpose or hope or that transcends their current predicament. And what got me was that Elijah says to her, as if there were two cakes to make, he says, first, make me one. She's just told him that she's only got enough for one and that she's going to make it and die. It's like he didn't hear, and he says, first, as if there would be a one and then another, make me one. It's a remarkable thing. I don't know of any man of God who would just do such a thing off the cuff, you know, travel out of your country into the region of Zarephath and find somebody who's starving to death you know, about to give their boy and them the last meal and say, I understand, give me something first. It's not automatically the most loving, considerate, deferential, you know, thoughtless thing to do. We have to assume that Elijah saw something bigger at stake. What he saw was that this woman's problems and this woman's perspective was the mountain. Providing food for her was a small thing in God's eyes. 
But moving the mountain of faithlessness, moving the mountain of defeatism, that was a Herculean task. And God had to address that first. I know we all seek the mountain of cancer to be moved and the mountain of diabetes to be cast out. And I know we think those are the big miracles. But there's no mountain in the world bigger than the mountain of selfishness and stubborn will that wants to stand in the way of God. That's what's so powerful in the book of Zechariah when they're talking about going and doing God's will. Just like Brother Thompson and this church is, is setting out to do God's will, there's this word in there and he says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. Amen. He'll take every mountain and he'll bring it low and he'll take every valley and he'll raise it up. Mountains represent our stubborn will. Valleys represent our tragic defeats. God's not going to be stopped by either of them if we'll give them to him. And what got me in that passage there of, of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, I mean, she had, to, she had to give him a second look with his funny Hebrew accent. What did you just say? But something, some kind of hope must have started stirring in her heart. And she said, okay. I'll bake you one, the first one, and then we'll see. And it just gets me that at just the moment when we think we're the most needy, the most helpless, the most desperate, God demands that we make a sacrifice. Because the big mountain is us. It's just our ugly flesh. It's just our entrenched will. That's the only mountain that is blocking God's miracle in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. So we sang the song, you'll speak to the mountain and the mountain will move. God, I feel you speaking to the mountain inside of me, the mountain of my pride, the mountain of my stubbornness, the mountain of my will, the mountain of my ambitions. And I hear you saying, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Those are the desires we want. That's why it's so important to come into the presence of God. That's why it's so important to transcend our carnal limitations through praise, through acknowledgement. That's why the Bible says we're made overcomers. Well, what's an overcomer? Someone who never had a problem? No, someone who had to come over their problems. Sometimes you talk to your mountain and it doesn't listen. Well, climb over it. But just don't stop moving toward the promise of God's voice even if he's telling you to make a cake with your last little bit of dough and water, we need to make a sacrifice. We think we're so needy. We think we're so desperate. Sure we are, but God's still saying, you're not going to be healed. You're not going to be changed until you shift centers, until the Lord Jesus becomes the center, the circumference around which we orbit. We started out in the first meeting, I think it was, we talked about the word hallelujah, right? Well, did I have that close? I surrender, I yield my whole being to Yahweh. That's one rendering of what they meant when they would say that. That powerful word, I surrender. And here we are at the end, the Lord asking, can you do it even if it's your mind, your will, what you think you know and see? It's not out of our strength that we sacrifice to God. 
He's uninterested in that. It's out of our weakness that anything meaningful starts. That's why he told Paul, Paul begged him, please get me out of this circumstance. And he said, no. I paraphrase, no. Because that weakness is needed in you in order to perfect my power. God's not disappointed. He's not dismayed. And he's certainly not scared about our problems. He just wants us to move the mountain between our ears. Thank you, Jesus, to trust him with all of our hearts. Amen. To go all the way. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Why would I worry when giants come calling my name? Because my God is so much greater than problems I face. Why would I hunger for power or riches or fame? so much better than all of these things so I won't be shaken no I won't be moved cause my God is faithful and his promise is true so I They know the battle is won. Oh, my God is greater. The victory is already won. 